0: Well, hello and welcome to Aeronautical Reads with me, Chris Stammer-Major. In this episode, we're continuing 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Baty, published in 1922. We're on part eight and we're continuing chapter five. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. And there for five dollars a month, you can become part of the crew, support the podcast and keep these books where they should be in circulation. Now on with the story. Chapter 5 continued. There are no trees on Desolation Island and without coal our oil factory would cease smoking and smelling which no doubt would please the penguins but would be fatal to our own ambitions. I had overcome the difficulty of cast making and we already challenged sea elephants to mortal combat with the odds on our side but we should be undone if we ran short of fuel. It was therefore an essential thing that we should search for coal. And be successful in our search. Henry, who has a keener sense for geology than I, had volunteered to go out himself on this quest, and early one morning he set out alone from Loom Bay, after being rowed across the harbour by one of the boys. He was away for many hours, and when the rose-tinted clouds faded out of the evening sky and darkness fell, I became very anxious for his safety. I blamed myself for having let him go alone, and conjured up many dreadful visions of him lying maimed or mangled at the bottom of a jagged ledge of rock, or in one of those deep gullies which made a solitary walk so perilous. It would be a terrible thing if Henry were to meet with such an accident beyond the call of help. I had a lamp hoisted on our mainmast to serve as a beacon, and at last I was thankful beyond words to hear his voice shouting for the boat, it was then eleven o'clock, and I had almost given him up as lost. When he came on board, he was so exhausted that he could hardly stand having tramped all those long hours across the rocks and over the mountain ridges and deep down into the grim, boulder-strewn valleys with a gun over his shoulder-a heavy weight on such a walk-and with a canvas bag containing provisions for several days in case of need. But his day's toil was not without results for with his keen vision for likely places in which coal might be deposited he had run across some open seams and brought back some good specimens he had also shot several ducks as a present to Esno we immediately put his specimens to the test and I had a feeling this time that it might be Henry's turn to see them turn to stone but fortunately they burned fairly well though the quality was not very good. The seam from which it was taken will probably have to mature for a few thousands of years more before it becomes of any commercial value, but it served us until we got stuff of a better quality on another part of the island, though it was so far away that we could not afford the time and trouble to fetch much of it. Altogether, we found about 20 coal deposits in different parts of Kerguelen, and this was the result of an exhaustive survey so that, though the quality is never very good, it should prove of value in melting blubber. The best quality was near Sandy Cove, where, during a stay which I shall describe later, we burned about six tonnes. It was of a peculiar quality because, although perfectly black and shining like the best house coal of Europe, one might rub it against one's hand without any blackness coming off. This is due to it being new coal, as geological time is reckoned. I remember that, when I returned from my voyage and talked about the coal, a lady of my acquaintance was exceedingly sceptical as to its existence. You have told us, Captain, she said, that no trees grow on Desolation Island. It is impossible then to believe in the presence of coal, which, as every child knows, is the carbon of old wood. Her logic was perfect as far as it went, but it did not go very far. It is perfectly true that there are no trees on Kogulian at the present day, but it is equally certain that in prehistoric times, after the volcanic forces had thrown up the mountains and piled peak on peak, There were luxuriant forests on this land and its adjacent islands. The climactic conditions of the world have undergone many changes before man began to test them with his little scientific instruments. As the coal we first discovered was at too great a distance, we searched in places nearer to the coast so that we might not have to carry it far to our rowing boats. In Seal Bay, the next opening southward from Loom Bay, we found a seam of coal which was very brilliant in appearance and looked like Cardiff coal. We rubbed our hands in glee, and having returned to the ship for tools, set out for a heavy day's work with shovels, picks and blasting powder. It was arduous toil, and we were not expert coal diggers, and we had to be very careful to avoid being crushed under the heavy masses which we loosened in the face of the cliff. But after many hours' work, we had a pile of huge lumps around us, and each of us shouldered as big a piece as strength would permit. So we marched, or rather staggered and stumbled, under those burdens to our boat, and then rode back some miles to the J.B. Charcot, tired but triumphant. Our triumph was once more chastened. After trying the coal, we found that it contained over 30% of silicate of iron, and the fire was soon put out by the quantity of clinkers that accumulated. I ought perhaps to make it clear to those of my readers who imagine that coal is always deep in the bowels of the earth, that here in Desolation Island, the seams we found and worked were exposed to view, generally in the side of some deep cutting worn by a stream. Of course, we had neither the time nor the experience to search for or to obtain coal that lay below the surface. It was about this time, when we were in and around Loom Bay, that Agne had an adventure which nearly robbed us of a good, brave and trustworthy comrade. It was his great delight and pride to be entrusted with a gun, with which he went out to shoot a duck or two. On this day, he went in a boat with Larose who rowed him across to the beach and waited there, resting on his oars, perfectly contented in his dreamy way to listen to the lap of the water and the voices of the seabirds, while Agnès went ashore and wandered away in search of his game. After some time, he heard Agnès shouting, but LaRose was in a revere. Perhaps he was dreaming of a stewed duck and did not pay any attention to the noise from his comrade. The shouts continued, and LaRose became a little annoyed at such persistent interruption of his valuable thoughts, Again the shouts came to him, and he answered back, "'All right, my friend, I'm coming. Don't be in such a deuce of a hurry,' or words to that effect. He took his oars and rowed lazily towards the spot where Agne had landed, and then as he drew nearer, the peculiar note of Agne's voice startled the simple fellow, and it began to dawn upon his mind that his comrade was in serious trouble. To do Leroux's justice, and I, I think I have chafed him enough, he was, in spite of his simplicity, a fine fellow, and as brave as a lion, and of an affectionate and loyal character. Directly, it came to him that Agnes needed his help. He sprang out of the boat and ran about searching for him, but to his dismay, and though still hearing Agnes's voice growing fainter now and more agonized, he could not see a trace of the lad himself. It was twilight, and the black rocks were in half-darkness, and the pools of water between them were overshadowed. But by the sound of the voice he drew near to the right place, and then he saw Agnes, or rather part of him, that poor fellow had disappeared except for his head and shoulders. He had stuck up to the armpits in a mud hole and was slowly sinking to a dreadful death. His face was ghastly white and his eyes were eloquent of terror, for, in spite of his courage, it was a horrible thing to meet a death like this. LaRose understood the meaning of his shouts now. He took one of the oars of the boat and held it out to his comrade, who was just able to grasp it. Then LaRose, roused now to his full strength, hauled him out and rescued him from what seemed like his doom. It appeared that Agnès had gone wandering with his gun in search of wildfowl and had seen a broad, smooth, shining patch of ground under a rocky ridge which attracted him because of its peculiar appearance. He strolled across it and immediately began to sink into a bog. He was unable to extricate his lower limbs from this liquid soil, but he had the presence of mind to place his gun horizontally between his arms, which undoubtedly was the means of saving his life. The two boys came back to the ship and told their story, Agnès very white in the face after his awful shock and his clothes caked with mud. Henry and I were much concerned, and Henry especially was very angry with Jean Bontemps, who had been keeping watch on deck. "'Good heavens, man,' said my brother." Didn't you hear poor Agne shouting? What had happened to your ears? I did hear him calling, said Bon Toms, but I thought he was singing, Captain. This was the last stroke to Agne, who had a very good singing voice, as I have already said in the course of this narrative. Singing, he said, with great indignation. He thought I was singing? Why, I was just bellowing. As a matter of fact, we found afterwards that there was a real excuse for Bon Toms. We discovered that when we shouted on shore our voices went echoing in a peculiar way among the rocks so that they had a wailing singing sound when heard at a distance. The mud hole in which poor Agne was nearly swallowed up was only one of many in Desolation Island. They abound in various parts of the island and in the most unexpected places. We always had to be very careful in avoiding them when tramping on expeditions to the interior. I had heard of them before because whalers and sealers have told stories of shipmates who have gone ashore to explore the district around their anchorage and have never come back again, the belief being that they had been buried alive in one of these sinkholes as they are sometimes called. Another cause of danger is the strange way in which the crest of the rocks was broken away, forming pits or holes, sometimes to the depth of 40 or 50 feet. A false step and a tumble into one of these oubliettes would cause the instant death of any unfortunate traveller. We were lucky, however, in discovering many ponds among the rocks which had been scooped out by the action of frost or weather, or by volcanic disturbances, and filled with good fresh water, crystal clear and very cold. Some of these ponds were almost big enough to deserve the name of lakes, and they provided us with drinking water and enabled us to replenish our tanks in the ship. I must not forget to mention here a peculiar plant which we found on the lower ledges of the rocks among the narrow belts of coarse herbage. It is called the Kegoulian cabbage and has a tough, thick coat growing along the ground and then shooting up with a top of thick, broad leaves. We gathered a good deal of this plant and made use of it in our cooking because we had a great need of vegetable food to keep our blood pure. But the Kegoulian cabbage is not an ideal green stuff. We had to boil it twice before we could eat it for it has a most rank and bitter taste, very much like the most powerful horseradish. In the first boiling, the water becomes of a dark yellow colour, but in the second boiling, it is fairly clear, and the cabbage then becomes eatable. We made sauces with it, and chopped it up with our tinned meats for the stewpot. I am bound to confess that, in spite of the hardships of life on this desert island, we kept a very good larder, for there is a great variety of bird life on Cagoulian, and some of us were good shots, these birds, too, were worthy of attention for other reasons than the satisfaction of our hunger. During our Robinson Crusoe life, they provided us with a continual source of interest, and their presence relieved the desolate and inhumane loneliness which otherwise might have been intolerable. It was indeed a paradise of birds, and their voices soon became familiar to our ears. Even at night one could hear them in the tremulous darkness, and some of their cries had a strangely human note, plaintive and pitiful sometimes as though children were crying in distress. The whale bird, for instance, is seldom seen in the daytime, and then it seems confused by the light, flying in an irregular, uncertain way. But when darkness falls, the hillsides, which have been quiet and desolate during the day, are thronged with these birds, which swoop about in short, swift, darting flights, as though a legion of bats were in the air, and all the time making a loud, cooing noise, something like the note of pigeons but more staccato in sound. The diver is another night bird, and it has a peculiar cry like the mewing and mewling of a cat. There were times as I stood on deck in the night watch listening to this bird when I could almost have believed that I was back in Paris in a room under the attics where the cats were on the prowl and indulging in their witch's chorus. This mewing bird is of peculiar appearance, having a blue-black head and white throat, a heavy body in proportion to its spreading wings and a naked stomach uncovered by any down or feathers. There are many other peculiar birds on Kerguelen, but I think my readers will prefer to follow our further adventures rather than read natural history. Chapter 6 We decided to get away from Loom Bay as it was by no means a safe anchorage in that harbour and at each gale we feared that the cable might break and the J.B. Charcot drift helplessly onto the rocks. Before leaving, however, I went on another expedition inland with La Rose. Rowing off from our ship, we sounded down centre bay and then crossed over to Red Cliff, so called from the presence of ferrous oxide in the basalt. It will be easily understood that in a country where the prevailing tone is black, a faint tinge of red is startling, and although this cliff was not very rich in that colour, yet in the glow of the sunlight it justifies its name. Close by, we found a freshwater lake, hitherto uncharted. We also went to Bear Up Bay, which we found to be of a totally different shape to that marked on our chart, and extending to a far greater length, broadening out at the top like a mushroom. At the end of this bay, we discovered a very high mountain, forming no doubt the furthest spur of a great range of tumbled peaks, rising to the summit of Mount Richards, which is 4,000 feet high, with glacial ravines dug down the eastern sides of the mountain slopes to White Bay. This trip took us two days, and shortly afterwards, that is on the 25th of April, we hoisted anchor on the J.B. Charcot and set sail, having been in Loom Bay since 12th of March. It was then summer, and we had had a few fine days, though the thermometer never rose higher than 12 degrees centigrade. But when we got out of the bay early in the morning, a heavy snow squall overtook us, whitening our deck and rigging so that we looked like an old-fashioned Christmas card, but without the sentimental greeting attached thereto. We rounded Cox Point and found a heavy sea breaking over hidden reefs. It was an ugly position and Henry and I became anxious when night came and we stood very near to Schultz Reef. We did not know whether it was best to stand out in the open sea for the night, but finally we decided to sail ahead and when it was pitch dark we anchored at the entrance of Pigeon Harbour. We had made a fair sweep westward and southward round the mainland of Desolation Island, passing by sheer luck between many islands scattered out to sea and all around this jagged coast, through the beds of rockweed first passed by Captain James Cook in the Resolution a century and a half ago, and into Hillsborough Bay on the west side of the Jackman Peninsula. During that trip, we had, while the light remained with us, a broad survey of the scenery of Cogulian, rising in the interior to great heights of tumbled rocks and sharp-edged peaks as we looked across our starboard bows to the westward side. While away eastward, the range of high cliffs, with Mount Campbell as their highest point, formed a great headland thrust forward to the sea. On the following day, we rowed into the entrance of Gazelle Basin, which was to be our harbour for several months, and went ashore by Sandy Cove. Here, immediately, as though we had foreknowledge of it, my brother's quick eyes discovered a seam of coal. This time it proved to be of good quality, burning well and without many clinkers. It was a glorious find, and it was this which decided us to make our headquarters in this anchorage. Accordingly, on the following day, I got my boys into the boat again, and with a rope to the bows of our little ship, we towed her slowly into Gazelle Basin and dropped her anchors at Sandy Cove. On our chart, There was marked a depot which had been left by the commander of the Ure. It was marked by a cairn and naturally our first thought was to find its whereabouts. This was as easy as if we had had a signpost. It was an hour of keen excitement when we came across the relics of former occupation and we were as happy as children who had unearthed a treasure trove. The weather had not left these stores undisturbed and undamaged, although they were buried beneath a pile of stones. Five casks there were, all rotten, and the blankets and clothing which had been packed into them had been made utterly worthless by years of rain and snow. When we took them out, they were neatly folded, but each fold was a rent, and they fell to shreds and patches in our hands. The biscuits in other barrels had all been washed together into a pulpy mass and had a very sour smell. The rotten wood of the casks themselves had long moss upon them. A pile of tinned food had escaped damage partly by having been tarred all over. We opened one of them and tasted the beef. It was perfectly good, but fortunately we had no need to take any for our own use, so we carefully replaced the cases, and as a little contribution to any further adventurers who might come ashore here, perhaps in a bad plight after storm or shipwreck, we left a box containing needles and twine and matches, the two things most necessary to mariners in distress because, of course, if you have the wherewithal to make a fire, and a tent, and clothing, you have good reason for thankfulness. As soon as we had settled down in Gazelle Bay, we began to work the coal in order to obtain a good store for our oil factory. It was about 200 yards from the water, and the seam had dug a deep hole in the cliff, so that it had a projecting ledge, underneath which were the coal seams. While my brother was superintending the preliminaries of his work, the Rose and I walked to Observatory Bay, a one-day tramp across the mainland which divides Hillsborough Bay from Royal Sound. It was here that the English expedition had come in 1874 to observe the transit of Venus, and afterwards, in 1902-1903, to 1903, a German expedition with three scientists and seven men in a ship called the Gans. One of the scientists, Dr. Drygalski, had climbed the summit of one of the peaks and built a cairn in which he had put a bottle containing a message, La Rose and I discovered this and read the words of the message, which states that the ascent had been made and that the mount had been called Drygalsky Berg. We also found a grave marked with a stone to the memory of Dr. Engensberger, and two other graves with wooden planks upon which had been carved some Chinese characters. It was a strange and solemn thing to find the record of this tragedy in that wilderness of rocks. I knew that Dr. Engensberger was reported to have died of beriberi. "'brought by Chinese upon a sealing vessel. "'Shortly afterwards, we made a still more interesting discovery. "'We had tramped for many miles among the rocks "'when La Rose suddenly called out "'as though moved by a strong excitement. "'Captain,' he said, "'Captain, look yonder.' "'What's the matter?' I said. "'It's a house,' said LaRose, "'as though such a thing were a miracle on Desolation Island. "'I looked to where he pointed, "'and there, sure enough, "'were the four walls of a little building "'put up by human hands.' I knew at once that we had found the headquarters of the German expedition, which had come out under the command of Dr. Drygowski to make astronomical and other observations in the year 1902. I suppose my readers will hardly understand the emotion that gripped us at the sight of that little dwelling place. Robinson Crusoe, after some months of loneliness on his desert island, had suddenly seen the imprint of a human foot in the sand, and all lovers of that immortal romance will remember how they shared his thrill at the discovery. We too were on a desert island. For months now we had not seen a sign of human handicraft, but only the rock fortresses built by the great forces of nature and the mountain ranges thrown up in volcanic cataclysms. For months we had wandered, far from civilization, and it seemed to us, though we knew otherwise, that no human beings except ourselves had ever set foot upon these desolate shores or lived in its barren solitudes. But here, before us, stood four square to the winds of heaven, a house, the sign of civilised life, the silent proof that other men had once come in a ship to Kogulian, that human voices had once echoed across the bay, that they, whoever they might have been, had had similar adventures to our own, had gazed out upon the grand and awful scenery of this island, had listened with beating hearts to the unbroken silence, or to the sullen moaning of the storm winds and the whistling of the willy wars. No sight could have been more beautiful, more fascinating, more thrilling to our seamen's eyes than the view of that small house which had stood against the fierce squalls and the furious gales of this coast, long after the men who had built it had departed over the sea. Something like a mist of tears obscured my eyes for a moment, for this house was the shrine of many memories and a tale of romance. La Rose and I went up to it silently, There was something a little uncanny, something haunting to the imagination in this deserted dwelling place. I remembered old fairy stories told round hearthsides in Brittany of travellers coming upon such a hut in lonely, goblin-haunted forests. Should we find a dragon sleeping across the threshold, or a witch hag boiling men's bones in a cauldron? Seriously, there was a sense of old-world romance in the discovery. As we drew near, we saw that, though the walls stood, the weather had played havoc with the building. Its windows stared at us with blind eyes out of hollow sockets. The panes had been broken by the gusts which had rattled against them and buffeted them with brutal strength. The roof had been smashed in and was full of gaping holes. The wind even now was whistling through cracks in the walls. The German house was falling into ruins. La Rose and I went to the door and lifted the latch and walked in. Then I gazed around, drawing my breath at the strange sight which met my eyes. Here, many years before, my predecessors in exploration had made a home and had surrounded themselves with the comforts of civilised life. Their furniture was still here, tables and chairs and iron bedsteads. But how strangely all had been left. It was as though they had been disturbed in their life by the warning of some attack and had fled without a moment's time to carry away any of their goods. Indeed, it was as though the enemy had fallen upon them suddenly, as though some dreadful scene of brutal savagery had taken place within these walls, before the men had been carried off as prisoners of war, and all things had been abandoned as they stood. It was strange. Here were the cooking pots and the plates and dishes, just as the unknown dwellers in this house had sat down to their last meal. But for some reason, that meal had been untouched. In the iron pots was a stew of some kind, thickly covered with mould, and the breeding place of myriads of bacilli. The plates and dishes contained food of the same kind, sour and mouldy and evil-looking. I had an involuntary shudder, just at the sight of it. There were other provisions, abandoned by the men who had brought them ashore. There were many kinds of tinned meat, and some days later I sampled them. They were quite good to eat, and, as I shall have to tell, I lived upon them for some time, They were almost tasteless, and for the life of me, I could not have distinguished beef from mutton or chicken from ham. A frightful and sickening stench pervaded the hut, so that I could hardly stay there. I found that it came from a dish of peas lying on one of the tables. They were quite rotten, and the smell that came from them was indescribable. I took up the dish and, carrying it outside, hurled it away to the rocks, where the wind could have free play with those pestilent peas. Then I went back to the house again and with La Rose explored still further into the mysteries of this deserted dwelling. The most curious thing was to find the clothing of the former inhabitants. They had not carried away this personal property, and now still hanging upon nails or flung about the floor, or lying across the chain bedsteads, were jackets and trousers, and old socks and shirts, just as if those German explorers had jumped out of bed and fled away in nakedness. But when the twilight crept into the hut, those clothes seemed to assume human shape, and for all the world they looked like dead men hanging upon hooks. It was evident, however, that those German scientists had dwelt here in comfort greater than that enjoyed by the crew of the J.B. Charcot. They had put up with loneliness, but not with any lack of luxury. I found hundreds of bottles for wine and spirits, but none with any drop of liquor in them. I do not think I have ever seen such a stack of empty bottles about one house, The Germans had left their food, but they had certainly quenched their thirst before abandoning their hut. It was disappointing to me that I could not drink to their good health. I have said that the hut was deserted, yet there were living creatures there. When our footsteps crossed the threshold, there was a scampering and a hurrying and a scurrying of many little pattering feet. Hundreds of mice had made a dwelling place within these four walls and had reared many fine families within their shelter. These creatures had grown grossly fat upon the refuse, scattered over the floors and tables, although, curiously enough, they had not touched the meal once prepared for German scientists. They seemed to prefer to gorge upon the papers that made a litter everywhere, German illustrated papers and German pamphlets and old letters. I stamped upon the floor and made those little beasts run away to hiding places from which they blinked at us, not very much afraid. When Henry came afterwards to the hut... He was much interested in these papers, for he reads German easily, and he was glad to find a history of the Franco-Prussian War, which he took back with him to the ship. Often at night he would sit reading it for hours and translating it as he read for my benefit. It was instructive to get the German point of view of the great conflict with France, and there were many thrilling and amusing stories of French and German soldiers. That book beguiled many an evening on the J.B. Charcot, and was a notable addition to our little library. That's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up to the mates level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.